good morning, afternoon, and evening to everyone who is listening. Welcome to the Servants Council Podcast, a place where listeners come to learn and grow their servant leadership style. Our goal and hope is to encourage, educate, and empower present and future generations to become servant leaders and build healthy, lasting communities. I am your host, Joe Gross Jr. And if you're just jumping in with us now, we have been discussing the domains or behaviors that servant leaders display. In today's episode, we'll be building off the last few domains and how those behaviors make us better persuaders. Joining me in today's episode is my friend and brother, Garrett G. Bodie. So family, let's go ahead and jump on in. So G, man, how are you doing this morning, brother? I'm absolutely stellar, Joe. How are you today? I'm good, man. You know, no complaints. We were chopping up a little bit earlier, right before the recording and kiddos, you got kiddos, you got, an, you got a kiddo. Kim Tom asked me to ask you, how is your sleep? I forgot to ask you that. So how is your sleep going? My sleep is going. So that's a, a huge blessing. You know, he, my son, Aiden, of course, he, he had that two month marker and he shockingly sleeps really well through the night. He really wakes up one time in the middle of the night and then makes really? sure he keeps me honest at about five to 6 a.m., which is when I get up anyway. So you know, I, we take turns. So Ashley wakes up in the middle of the night and I catch morning duty. So we both pretty consistently get about seven hours of sleep. So very, very blessed. Oh man. Well, that's great, brother. <laughs> so we're, we may be a little bit envious because our kids waited until about a year before that happens. But all right, that's great, man. I'm glad. I'm glad you're doing great this morning. Um, it's morning time. Um, so with that, G, if you don't mind, man, could you introduce yourself to our listeners as to who you are? Uh, maybe some passenger and jobs and all that good jazz. Absolutely. I'll do my best. So like you said, I am Garrett Bodie. Uh, of course, we know each other from a shared career. So I am also uh, enlisted military, United States Air Force. I'm a professional military educator currently. So I teach leadership and supervisory skills at an initial supervisory course. However, beforehand, uh, I was aircraft maintenance. I've also been um, other instructional roles. I've been Air Force Honor Guard. Uh, I've deployed as force protection. And then since I joined the military late in life, I've also done a number of other things. I've worked in the private sector as a manager of a furniture store of a couple different restaurants. I've been to school. So I have an undergraduate degree, a bachelor's of science in biology, and I'm working on nearing completion of my master's of science in psychology with a focus in doctoral prep. And my intention there is to get my PhD and become a clinical psychologist and turn around and continue to serve the Air Force and the military community and its families. But aside from that, I'm more than anything, I'm a, a husband doing his best to be the best husband in the world and a, a new dad doing his best to hold on and you know, get some sleep and uh, manage my schedule because I'm the busiest I've ever been and just trying to do my best to, to be a reflection of Christ. Amen. Okay. Thank you, buddy, man. Thank you, brother, for introducing yourself to the servants council. Um, as you all heard, right? So G man, he's been, he's been working on his master's degree, almost complete with psychology. And I know that uh, his route is that PhD route. And that's one of the reasons um, that I asked Bodhi to join us today, or G to join us today. I'm used to call him Bodhi, so y'all please forgive me. 
But not only that, right? I didn't just invite you because I know that you're working on it, but I have a personal relationship with you. We had some real conversations in the office. Um, I would say very edifying conversations in the office, man, from spiritual peace. And you're right. Um, we just said, you know, Christ to career peace to a, you know, advice, so on and so forth. So I, I found our conversations to be very edifying. And I was like, oh, man, you got to come in here and talk about the domain for persuasion. Because uh, for my listeners out there, Bodhi is a technical sergeant, right? Or G is a technical sergeant, uh, but he's about our age group. So he really should be like a master, a senior. Um, so how does that work? How does he utilize persuasion skills and so on and so forth, right? And that gets us into the academic portion because so far we've talked about the first four domains, right? Listening, empathy, healing, and awareness. Um, and that those behaviors will now help us become better at persuading others. Dr. Greenleaf, again, the, the main academic sponsor for Servant Leadership described persuasion as the virtue of change by convincement rather than coercion. And its advantages are obvious, are completely obvious, right? He tells the story of John Woolman. I don't know, um, G, if you're if you're familiar with John Woolman, right? But he's a American Quaker who lived through the middle years of 18th century, and he had remarkable persuasion skills. And for those who are not familiar with Woolman's story, he's a man who almost single-handedly rid the religious society of friends of slaves. So many of the 18th century American Quakers were affluent conservative slaveholders, and John Woolman, as a young man, set his goal to rid the society of that terrible practice. Woman probably primarily devoted 30 years of his adult years. So he lived until he was age 52 to his mission. And by 1770, uh, nearly 100 years before the Civil War, no Quakers held enslaved people. Right. And that's amazing in itself. Um, what Dr. Greenleaf notes and Dr. Greenleaf, he's very interesting. If you ever read any of his re uh, writings or journals, like I always find it interesting that his mindset, because it's not, I would say it's not conventional. When I say conventional, yeah, like, for example, he was like, hey, so those folks that are servant leaders, they get their master's, they get their doctorate. They should not move to the suburbs. They should go back to their community. And you're like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's like, no, 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 no. I want you guys to, because they need to see it in the community. You need to bring the community up, right? So we haven't even talked about community building yet, but he's just very, I say that before I say this statement. Um, but he says, Dr. Greenleaf says, and he noted that woman's method was unique as that he didn't start a protest movement, but systematically spoke with gentle and yet clear and persistent persuasion. Um, and that's interesting. Like, hey, we want to change something, but I'm not going to do a, a, a big protest. It's going to be very systematically. Right. So he just noted that. What Dr. Greenleaf wonders is like, what, what would have been the result if we just had 50 John Womans or maybe even five? Right. What would have happened in the 18th century with the colonies? Right. If if folks were doing it one by one with gentle, non-judgmental argument that a wrong should be righted by individual voluntary action. It's just it's very interesting. Um, Dr. Patterson, um, shout out to her as I am learning under her right now. <laughs> Notes that servant leaders primarily rely on persuasion rather than the person's positional authority and making decisions within organization. Instead, they seek to convince others rather than coerce compliance. This particular element offers one of the most apparent distinctions between traditional authoritarian model and that of servant leader. Servant leader is effective at building consensus without groups, so therefore we can define persuasion as clear and concise, uh, clear, 
persistent and concise communication that convinces others to change. Uh, we can define it also as creating change using gentle non-judgment argument and that our communication is persuasion over coercion. So G, what has your studies told you about this power of persuasion? Because I know you guys will go deep, right? <laughs> my my degree is in the, what is it? The arts, you are in the science, my friend. So, you know, you guys go deep. So uh, I appreciate that, Joe. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that, uh, funny enough, I think persuasion from a personal perspective is just as much an art as it is a science. Um, but with that being said, I, I kind of want to go through a couple paces here. The, mm -hmm. the first thing I want to do is I want to break down kind of the essential psychological mechanics at mm -hmm. about a mid-tier level of persuasion and how it works and and um, what matters when it comes to persuading. Then I want to compare the modern, I guess, scientific consensus and perspective of social psychology, which is where persuasion falls under, mm -hmm. with uh, what I feel like is maybe a more accurate view that um, your example, Woolman actually espoused and saw a world-changing impact because of a different perspective. Right. And then just to make a couple recommendations for any of the listeners on the podcast, if they're genuinely interested in refining and honing their persuasion skills, if that's good with you, Jim. Yeah, that's good. That sounds good. That sounds good. No one's going to be claimed by that one. <laughs> Let's right. go, brother. So I'm going to start off talking about uh, persuasion and things that influence persuasion. So what persuasion is ultimately is the attempt to change someone else's thought process. So socially, we have a number of motives um, that that really human beings in general espouse. And this isn't a comprehensive list. Psychologists mm -hmm. and social psychologists argue about what's a comprehensive list all the time. But there are three of these motives that I really want to touch on real quick. And one is understanding. And it's really the most important one. Mm -hmm. We as humans want to understand our environment and we want to understand others. Um, part of that is another need, which is controlling. I have to know how, when I react with my environment, how that environment will respond. That gives me stability and safety and security. It reduces anxiety, reduces fear, um, helps me learn patterns so that I can exist with less mental effort and physical mm -hmm. effort. So when I say control, I don't mean like authoritarian style control. I just mean mm -hmm. control over my life. Okay. And this last one is self-enhancement, which is really, um, we all want to be a better version of ourselves. Uh, sometimes we like to take shortcuts, like when you fib in an interview about your qualifications. Uh, but a lot of the time, what that really means is just improving our uh, mental state, our mood, our lot in life, our relationships, whatever the case is. So with those being said, there's lots of reasons we could persuade someone. We could persuade someone because we want them to do something for us that would give us a greater sense of control. Like, mm -hmm. let's say a husband and wife are negotiating their roles in their, their new marriage. Like, hey, I, we need to know what we're responsible for so that we don't fight about it. Because now if we're not having arguments because we know what we're doing, now we have a sense of control Right, we have the shared, right under, shared understanding. 
Mm. And now, now life is simpler. That's one less thing we have to be anxious about. So knowing kind of what persuasion is and why fundamentally we might do it, there's four really key elements of persuasion. I'm going to break each one of them down a little bit. One is before you even give a persuasive message, there is a source of the persuasion. So the persuader, if you will. Mm -hmm. So two things really matter when it comes to the source of the persuasion. And that is credibility, really perceived credibility. You could also say perceived authority mm -hmm. and then attractiveness. The, the research is pretty clear that the perception of authority or the perception of credibility makes us believe people even without thinking through their argument. Mm. Even if we're convinced that the information they're sharing is wrong or goes against our better judgment, quite often we'll trust the person in the white lab coat versus the person wearing a sleeveless shirt. You know, like it's just the way our brain works. Um, it also means that we, if we have an established rapport and trust with someone, if they are persuading us someplace outside of our knowledge and expertise, mm -hmm. our reflex is to just go with them because we're leaning on that logical shortcut of credibility. The other side is attractiveness. We ascribe all kinds of positive personality traits and dispositions to people we think are pretty. It's just the nature of the thing. We think they're more trustworthy. We mm -hmm. think they're more reliable. We think they're more consistent. We think they're more uh, benign mm -hmm. and more interested in our well-being. Of course, that's not always the case. But there's something I want to important. I want to touch on when it comes to servant leadership with the attractiveness and credibility piece. Servant leaders very rarely will struggle. I think with the credibility piece because of the nature of the style of leadership they're pursuing. Mm -hmm. The attractiveness, I think a lot of people can get wrapped up on based off of definition. They'll think, oh, well, you know, I'm not a very pretty guy or I'm not the best looking gal or whatever the case mm -hmm. is. Attractiveness is not necessarily about looks. It's about how much appeal you generate towards another person. And I'll mm -hmm. give you a great example of this. If you have a conversation with somebody um, and you can try this with the next new person that walks into your office. Okay. I think you're actually an expert this already, but I'm going to go through this anyways. If when they talk to you, you listen attentively and spend most of the conversation asking about them, they will be highly attracted to you as an individual. We think people are the most interesting and the most attractive that think we're the most interesting and are attracted to us. And so empathy, active listening as skills, being genuinely interested in other human beings right. is phenomenally powerful at making you an attractive individual. And then of course, cover your basics, make sure you're well-groomed, you know, wear some nice right. clothes appropriate to the scenario, you know? So of course, that's the source of the message. So if you're looking to be persuasive, make sure you're dressed appropriately and you're doing mm -hmm. the best you can for yourself. But more importantly, listen attentively and be more interested in the other party. The next part is the source is going to be providing a persuasive message. So message is next. There's two parts to a persuasive message. So a normal conversation, uh, a sender will give a message and it just needs to be received, maybe not even acted upon. But in persuasion, 
Mm -hmm. I'm trying to change something or receive something. So there's two parts. There's the reception of the message. And then there's the yielding to the message. There's, I hear you. And then also I am changing something because you told me or communicated something with me. Mm -hmm. And these have a very interesting relationship with the strength of your argument. And when I mean strength, I mean how adamant you're being when you come at somebody. Uh, it's funny, a, you tend to receive better or hear the argument better, the more powerful the argument is. But you tend to yield more likely at a certain cap with how powerful the argument is. Mm. So the best way I can describe that is you need to be very careful with how heavy handed you are with your attempt to persuade. Mm. Okay. So you, I guess I'll use a, a minor example first. If we're at a car dealership and we've all been in a situation, furniture store, mm. car dealership, you know, uh, and someone comes up to you and they hound you and they won't leave you alone. That's actually the opposite of persuasion. It makes you less inclined to purchase mm -hmm. because while you've received their message, you don't want to yield. They're beating you over the head with it. On the flip side, if no one approaches you or they approach you in a really weak, passive way, you may not even pay attention to that message. You have to find a nice middle ground. Mm -hmm. This is important because I see this all the time in current discussions when we're trying to persuade people on important things, not by and right. far, but let's say um, political beliefs. We're having right. these discussions. And the first thing we do is we come out the gate and beat people over the head with our idea, our argument. We'll provide 53 studies. And as soon as you hit the third study, the person stopped listening because right. you're, you're going in too hard. Another thing that's important here is the, the recipient. And the recipient and the message tie together at this point because self-esteem of the recipient influences their ability to receive and their ability to mm. yield. So I'll give you an example. Someone okay. with really low self-esteem is probably in such a terrible affective state, such a low mood that it's very difficult for them to even receive a message. Mm. Someone with really high self-esteem is going to have a very difficult time yielding to your message because why would I do something you want to do? So something to be mindful of. And that takes us over into the recipient, which is a third part. So we've talked about source message, mm -hmm. the recipient self-esteem and being aware of the other party's self-esteem is important when you're trying to persuade them. The other thing that's important is every person has a different level of need for cognition. And what I mean by that is not everybody likes to think mm -hmm. different people like to think at different levels. And so you'll encounter various people that are more resistant to persuasion or require advanced levels or higher levels of preparation going into persuasion than others. And there are other people that they're very, very easy to persuade because they don't really like to work through difficult problems. This isn't a better or worse paradigm. This is just how mm -hmm. we work. Some people... Um, whether it be because they're contending with something like anxiety, depression, whatever the case is, they don't have the mental energy to deal with this. And then the flip side, there's some people that are just downright difficult because they analyze and criticize and think through everything. 
So that empathy piece and that understanding piece, knowing who you're dealing with and talking to is important. And the last one is the context of the persuasion environment. So the mood of the environment is important. If I'm trying to persuade somebody to do something and my argument is doom and gloom and they're in a good mood, what do you Mm -hmm. think they're inclined to do? They're probably right. going to ignore me because they want to preserve mm-hmm. pre- pre- preserve their good mood. Mm-hmm. Another important thing is being aware that in the persuasive scenario, you have to be very mindful of distraction. It's difficult to persuade somebody if they're already busy or occupied or if you're actively distracting them. I'm circling back now to that source piece. So we talked about attractiveness. Some mm-hmm. people I'm sure thought, oh, well, you know, dress in a way to make you seem physically attractive. Be careful of that because that can actually be distracting to somebody. You know, you you may be achieving a different objective than persuading them to listen to your point. Right. And the last one is time delay between the persuasion and the required change or action. Mm-hmm. So if I said, hey, I need you to change your mind about... Let's go back to the woman example. I need you to change your mind about about owning slaves 10 years from now. Everybody's going to be like, yeah, sure, whatever. But if I say right now, today, change this right now, that's a different level of impetus. And now we're going to have a real discussion because the way the human brain thinks about committing to action in the future is we actually think of it as someone else is committing to something else in the future. Mm. So we don't feel a burden of, of need or effort for that Mm. until it shows up on our doorstep. And now suddenly it's our problem. So I say all that to say, that's kind of the crux, the core of where social psychology is with persuasion. And you can get so much deeper than that. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. G. I appreciate it. Um, Something I want to touch on now. So we talked about kind of the the central tenets of um, persuasion. That is from the modern consensus of social psychology and psychologists in general. Mm-hmm. If you are interested in psychology, you kind of also have to be interested in philosophy because psychology was born from philosophy. They're both mm-hmm. sciences of thinking about thinking, just they, they follow different paths, right? Um, but there is a philosophy behind everybody's psychology. And the most commonly accepted one in, in the modern day is uh, the scientific method or an empirical method plus the anthropology or the concept of a human being that is naturalistic and materialistic, mm-hmm. which means that if I can't perceive it and I can't measure it, then it doesn't exist. Right. There are some challenges that come from that philosophy, though, because they tend to, not always, they tend to lead people to make some other philosophical assumptions about people. I promise I'm going to tie this back to persuasion. No, I got you. Now, I see where we're going. I know where we're going. I like it. Let's go. So that means that the modern... <laughs> consensus the philosophy behind psychology means that we tend to perceive other human beings as atomistic or individuals all right 
we tend to be deterministic, which means we think that biology plus environment equals action. We think that automatic thoughts and processes are way more important than active thinking. And we think that uh, we also tend to perceive humans as egoistic, which is uh, there's an illusion of choice and an illusion of free will, but really we're just math plugged into a process. The problem with that is, aside from that, it's a really bleak and discouraging way of perceiving the world and humanity, in in my opinion. I don't think that history as evidence really supports those ideas. And I think the example you leaded us off or led us off with, with the woman example is a beautiful example. If people were truly just a hundred percent hyper individualistic and they were just out to procreate and defend the, the continuation of their genes and the genes of their kin, there's no reason to give up a system that is as lopsided in a power hierarchy as slavery is. Mm-hmm. Now, if you change up your anthropology, keep the scientific method, keep the empiricism, but you change up your anthropology, just the way you look at human beings and you perceive us instead of being atomistic, but instead as being ontologically relational. So yes, you're an individual, but you are more than an individual. You exist in relationship to other people. And that is part of your identity. And I I think one of the biggest things, and this is something that's been brought to mind because of my son, is he's in relationship before he has an identity. Hmm. He he has relationships and will have relationships long before he's established his own personality, his own preferences. Right. Uh, And that's all of us. We all exist. You, we tend to overemphasize how much our individual personality influences things. And people don't understand that social context actually has way much more significant an influence on your decisions that you make on a day-to-day basis than just your core personality. Mm -hmm. So assuming that we're ontologically relational, that relationship is the default status of a human being. And instead of being egoistic we're agentic we are capable of making decisions we're capable of of having some amount of agency autonomy free will which leads to we are capable of virtuous action we're capable of selflessness and doing Mm -hmm. things that don't necessarily benefit us and just the continuation of our own progeny and genes and if you take that anthropological anthropological perspective then you can see that there are methods of persuading people where you don't have to beat them over the head. You don't have to dismiss them. You don't have to write them off if you don't persuade them the first time. You have the ability to be charitable with your expectations. You can say, hey, this may take some patience. I have to be empathetic. Even if this person is wrong, patently wrong, even if their beliefs are downright evil, I am aware of this person has the ability to choose. And this person is capable of virtuous action. What I have to do is to embed myself into their existence with our relationship. 
right? We have to ontologically, we have to exist as people in relationship, which leads to what we call some ordinary personality, we, which mm-hmm. leads to kind of common sense wisdom, which Dale Carnegie uh, was not a scientist. Uh, some even assume that he was a con man. Uh, but of course, he has oh, a yeah. famous book. I heard about that. How to Win Friends and Influence People. And one of his big things, as a matter of fact, most of his first rules, um, I'll see if I can pull them up real quick. I love these rules because what these rules are ultimately is just establishing empathy and attractiveness. going to go through the whole book i'm just going to read these first six principles from his book and you'll see where i'm coming from it's become genuinely interested in other people all right smile remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language be a good listener encourage others to talk about themselves talk in terms of the other person's interest and make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. That's not coming from a social psychologist. Mm-hmm. That's coming from an individual that has done this for, for mm-hmm. decades and has found great success at it. So as servant leaders, um, how do we circle back and, and apply this? Well, I think the biggest thing is you circle back and and you understand that no matter how much you disagree with another individual, you have to charitably perceive them as a human being that exists as they are because of current and past relationships. And they are capable of virtuous change based off of current and future relationships, which begets understanding and empathy, patience and listening and then you can apply some of the scientific razzle-dazzle if you right. need to. Don't, don't approach somebody trying to persuade them in basketball shorts and, and an undershirt. You know, like Make sure that you're accurately judging what level of argument and how much proof this person is going to mm-hmm. need, how much preparation you need going in. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have some things distracting them, be mindful of that. Maybe helpful with that first. If this person is dealing with depression, anxiety, if they have some trauma going in their life, you talked about healing previously. Mm-hmm. If this is something that's clouding their ability to operate in the real world, now is probably not the time to try to change a core element of their belief system. My last little scientific tidbit would be this. There is 
a phenomenon called the backfire effect, which is, uh, and it's it's kind of contentious in the scientific community because um, in pretty sure it was the middle 90s and early 2000s, it started to get explored. And in more recent time, social psychologists are having a harder time reproducing results with it. Mm. So that means take this with a grain of salt. Okay. There is a strange phenomenon where when we try to convince somebody that something they believe is untrue, quite often they become more convinced that it is true. Right. Uh, and a biggest place we see this, and I think the place that has the most scientific evidence supporting it is what they call worldview backfire effect, which is essentially if I challenge something that is a part of your worldview, you don't respond to that in a logical and rational way. You respond to it in a highly emotional way. And that makes sense. Like if, if your entire understanding of reality is built up brick by brick and foundations based off of how you were raised and your environment, and your early life experiences and all the truths you've known. And then I tell you out of nowhere that one of those bricks is wrong. I'm not really threatening a belief i'm threatening your identity is what mm. i'm doing so something we have to be mindful of when convincing people of something that can be very very core to their belief is one we have to approach it in a way where we are as mindful as possible not to be threatening to their identity and their core belief mm. And we have to be patient with them as well, because the, the science is pretty clear on this. When people change an idea that's core to them, that they've held a long time, they go through an experience that's very similar to grief. So they experience that change in a really slow, challenging process. Some people hypothesize that what they're grieving is all the mistakes and the errors they've made over however many years that they've believed that thing. So I guess an example would be if you're trying to convince somebody to not be sexist anymore, don't expect to have one conversation. That person is just fine and okay with it. Um, that person probably, if they do change their mind and do change their perspective, is probably going to have a lot of skeletons to unpack and have to process through from their past, which circles back to my last point, which is whenever we're trying to persuade people, uh, we need to be mindful to follow up with that persuasion with grace as well, because mm. persuasion isn't always permanent. Sometimes we have to, to reinforce and, and when we reinforce, we need to do it with, with care uh, and kindness. That was a really long ramble. No, Hopefully dude, that was that was very deep. Like that was like deep in, right? Like if we were a swimming pool, I'm I'm the you know the five foot, six foot, you over here like 16, 18, but deep, you know, deep. However, gee, that was that's a lot of wisdom, right? Um when we talk about persuasion, it's interesting. So but just for my listeners, me and G have not linked up to talk about like, hey, this is what we're gonna build and we're gonna talk about the domains. Like, no, I took the information I learned from my graduate degree program and put this here. G's doing his and everything that he just said, like everything you just said, G, everything that you said on persuasion, on what it is, the attractiveness, the context, 
it goes into, I can't, I'm not able to persuade appropriately if I'm not empathizing, if I'm not truly listening to understand you, if I'm not self-aware of my own emotions and my own blocks of bricks, right, of what I was growing, like my worldview, and then am I aware of your worldview? I'm not able to truly persuade if I don't understand healing, if I don't understand that in my persuasion, I have responsibility because we have a social concept to this, right? I'm not individualistic when I'm having this persuasion. It is a social concept, which means if I'm persuading you, I have a responsibility to you now, which is all about server leadership. Like It's crazy that we're having this conversation. I'm like, no way. Like, Obviously, Dr. Greenleaf was on something like persuasion is obviously part of servant leadership because you're able to do it. And one of the things that you uh, that you were saying that you're kind of hitting home on was the definition was, you know, it uses a gentle non-judgment argument when you kept saying, hey, grace, grace is gentle. It's non-judgment. I have to understand this is where you're coming from. So I'm going to have to give you grace. You're not going to meet it like using a sexist example. You're not going to meet it every single time. But I got to use gentle. It has to be non non judgmental because you're going to be changing a core block. Um, if we go there, you, you're making me think of um, what me and Winston do every single day, right? Where we're trying to convince the importance of of personal and professional development to wing commanders and to chiefs. Because for those folks that maybe not in the Air Force and may, or maybe your sister service, so you guys probably experience this as well. Is we talk big on personal and professional development, especially on the enlisted side. We talk big. But as a wise man once said, if you're really about it, are you spending time and money on it? And we know on the enlisted side, Air Force does not spend a lot of time and does not spend a lot of money on it, like at individual bases or anything. If I look at the money, if I look at the time, it's about mission, right? And that takes away from personal and professional development. So my job and Winston's job is to persuade these commanders of the importance. And um, as G, as you were speaking, I was like, yeah, I kind of come hard. I come hard to commanders. I come hard to chiefs. Like, do you guys not know the data points? And this is what you're creating. And, and you know, you're, you're making an institutionalized uh, mechanical organization versus a organism, right? Because that's the that's what's needed in today. Um, we need to be attractive. I don't need just doers. I need folks that think, right? And yes, we're doing that with the innovation cells, but are we doing that on a per, um, you know, personal and professional development? Are you willing to budget every year for personal and professional development to get your people certified, to get your people some of these courses? And in that persuasion, some folks listen based upon what you said, right? Other folks will hit us with a whole bunch of analytics like, so what's this? What's this? Where's the money coming from? How do we get the time? So it's it's understanding their thinking. And I'm like, okay, hey, you know, empathizing, using non-gentle argument to get the point across. I think we've done that a little bit better here at Kadena as you know, m- most folks, but you in the professional military education, I know you guys feel it too, right? I know y'all feel it too, as well as like, uh, yeah, we're not going to send, we're not going to send our airmen over to ALS. Like I need them in the unit. No, we're not going to send that, um, that newly select master sergeant or that tech sergeant over to NCOA. Sorry. Is there, is there something that they can't like, we hit that every single time, but yet we know the importance. So as you were discussing that, it was reminding me, like, oh yeah, I, I have to deal with, with quite a bit of that persuasion with higher ups and trying to help them understand the importance of it and making sure that they actually put time and money. Don't just say it's important. Take a picture of a book 
and put it on Facebook and Instagram and whatever and say, oh, this is what I'm reading. That's as minimal as possible. That's not showing importance. So that's interesting that um, as you were speaking, I was like, oh, man, I'm, th- I'm thinking about that example. Have you ever utilized any of the persuasion techniques that um, that we just discussed? And maybe as a personal example or even a professional example? That's 100 percent. I have. I I, uh, I feel like I've spent a lot of my life arguing with people. I think that's a consequence of growing up with a an older brother who is certifiably a, a genius. My brother is the smartest human being I've ever met, and he's never wrong. Um, and so I grew up arguing a lot with him. And, and as I grew into uh, a young man and even in college, I kind of carried that personality forward. And I realized that it's very difficult to win and maintain friends if you have to always be right. And it's it's a bad combination socially. Right. Uh, so um, as as time has gone on, the Lord has been very good to me and, and gracious with me. And I've been able to learn to scale back and be patient and empathetic and and listen to other people and acknowledge where my blind spots are and can be. But as far as trying to persuade people of painting their mind, I think that probably, you know, I can't think of a a concrete example right now off the top of my head. I know that I do it on a fairly consistent basis. It actually, now that I, I think of it, I, so I have a, I have had a peer previously in my career that we talked on a regular basis. He, he was a very good friend of mine and he was dealing with some really significant challenges, um, in his relationship and also personally. And there were challenges that really necessitated he change some behavior and also seek out some professional assistance to kind of organize his thoughts and Mm -hmm. potentially get a a diagnosis. And um, I was deployed with this individual and I was deployed for eight months. And I think I had attempted to talk to and persuade to this person, maybe not every day, but every other day for the better part of six or seven months before this person Mm -hmm gave me verbal affirmation that they were going to attempt to at least make some of the changes that I was hoping for and suggesting. And so really at the end of the day, what I struggled with, even though we were friends at first was one, he was very distracted. He had all type of moods and challenges and things that were, were prioritized for him. He had very, very low self-esteem, which made it difficult for him to receive uh, my argument. Um, but beyond that, I think I didn't have much credibility because he didn't know me. And so I was consistent and committed over time, which enhanced my credibility and eventually able to kind of just talk him through some of these things, alleviate just enough of this distraction and improve his mood just enough, just caring about him as a human being that right. um, he, he started to think, Hey, maybe, maybe this person does have my best interest in mind. And maybe this advice is, is decent advice. So I have followed up with this individual, at least, uh, the year after we got home, of course it was COVID. So a lot of stuff was going on, but they were better at that point. Um, they were getting 
the help they needed and their relationship had improved, which I take no credit for because I was not the agent involved with that. I was just encouraging them to pursue that course of action. But I say, so I actually say that example because it, sometimes it takes time to make significant changes. You're right. But if you, if you want to use an example, I guess is a little funnier and a little, I guess, more applicable to a lot of people. This is actually a good example. So uh, my last job before I was a PME instructor, I was the non-commissioned officer in charge of a section. So I was kind of the functional hands-on boss right below the section chief who is the administrative, kind of like the, the mid-level manager. And I had some employees, one in particular who was a call him Captain America. He's like absolutely jacked, like brilliant, great at his job, guess sir, you know, just good at what he does. Mm -hmm. And he was just, despite being super polished and professional and knowledgeable, he was just struggling navigating working with some other agencies on base. He was just, he just couldn't get them to help him. And this is an agency that always helps me. And so I wanted to figure out what was going on. So I took him with me one day to this agency to get some mm -hmm. help done. And we walked into the office and immediately I'm all smiles. Hey, how's it going, y'all? It's good to see y'all. Um, hey, so I have this issue. Would somebody mind helping me with this? And they ask for clarification. I give them as concise and clear information as I can. Still all smiles, still being pleasant. Yes, sir. No, sir. Very patient. And they go back into another office waiting. There's three other people in the office. I notice they have a snack bar and I'm kind of tired. So I go to buy myself a Red Bull mm -hmm. and I ask anybody else in the office if they want anything. And of course, a couple of people kind of look. All right, but sure. So for the cost of about $8, mm -hmm. I got a Red Bull. Everybody in the office now loves me and I have instant credibility and likability and I have not been a problem. I have not been difficult to work with. I have made their job easier, even though they're helping me. I've been very patient. With, I've made zero demands. And what we needed to get done, even though it's a challenging thing, was accomplished. And so while that's a little more comical and simple version, I think a lot of people just functionally don't understand that the old adage that you'll catch more flies with honey than vinegar really is true. Like if you approach a situation with the intent of being likable and being easy to help, you're probably going to get exactly what you want. Yep. But if I walk in, like I have some type of imaginary level of authority or some people owe me something, or if I'm just boring, if I walk in, I say nothing, I don't look at anybody, I don't interact. No one has an emotional tie to me to want to help me. So those are my that's facts. No, that's facts. I think that's, a, yeah, that's in fact, in fact, that's, I think that's how you got hired over at PME too, because you had the attractiveness. <laughs> if, I, if I'm recalling um, some stories from some, um, a couple of chiefs, right? So that's, that's a very good example. Um, and, and the impact and not impact of utilizing that persuasion skill. Cause I imagine Captain America was like, listen, I'm killing the game. I know what I'm doing. And uh, for those folks that have been in the military environment, if I'm ex extremely competent in both mm -hmm. my job and in PT, 
right? Whether you're a Marine, sailor, airman, soldier, then I can walk into any place and make my demands. And those demands should be met. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that's the mindset he went in and then he got to see you do it. And he's like, why are you, wait, why are you smiling? Why are you, why are you giving them food? Wait, it's done. This is a super, right? So you, you, you're teaching him that persuasion skill. You're teaching him servant leadership. Because again, you're not able to walk in unless you don't already have that preconceived relationship. Or I don't say preconceived, but you have that pre-relationship with them, right? Because if you didn't, you would have went, hey, how you guys doing? My name is Sergeant Bodie. I work over here. Um, how are you guys doing right now? You're like, hey, guys, what's going on? Like, you already have the relationship. They know this is who you are. This is the credibility. And then, of course, the tractiveness, right? Man, I, that's that's a really good example, brother. That's a really good example of persuasion. And I appreciate you dropping all of this knowledge on us um, for the listeners today on, on persuasion, on the four different ways that we can utilize it. The attractiveness piece that's always going to stick with me. Now it's always a thing. Like, you know, I'm I'm the guy who likes to wear gym trunks and tank tops and be like, let me go teach today. <laughs> and I know even with the Dale Carnegie, when I went through their course, uh, it wasn't Stephen Kobe. I mixed it up on one of the episodes, but Dale Carnegie course skills for success. That was one of the big things they talked about was like, do not, do not, do not, do not go into <laughs> a place that you're teaching and not be professionally dressed. But at the same time, don't be so professionally dressed that now we have a different kind of attractiveness that is getting away from that. So I I appreciate that, man. I appreciate you dropping these bombs on us, on us, uh, G man. Like it's it's perfect. There's there's other examples we can use, but I think we I think we hit that one pretty hard. Um, before before we kind of close, man, do you have any questions uh, for me or or just any other last minute uh, statements or? Anything of that nature? No, Joe. I just want to say it's been a pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Um, I've I've been on a couple podcasts, normally talking about emotional intelligence because you know that's kind of uh, my my bag, if you will. But right. this was interesting. It's fun. I got to stretch some other muscles. Um, so thank you for the opportunity. It's super humbling. I will say, just for our listeners, if if anyone here is interested in persuasion and and learning that skill set in a way that is charitable and not with the intent to manipulate um, or cause harm, but you also don't want to go through a graduate level social psychology class. I've got a couple books that I want to recommend. There's of course the classic how to win friends and influence people by Dale Carnegie, which you mentioned longstanding considered an expert in the field for over a century now. And I would also like to recommend a book called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by a, a Dr. Um, Cialdini or Cialdini. Yep, I have that so, book as well. Yep. Both excellent books. Um, they they give you, at least the Influence book, gives you just enough science to, to validate, but it doesn't wear you down. You're not going to be having to filter through 15 different citations and stuff. So right. both very readable very applicable, good text to to learn some foundations if you feel like that's a skill set that you're struggling with. Absolutely. Thanks, G. I appreciate that, man. I'm sure our listeners appreciate that as well. So, hey, in closing today, we just really hope, man, myself and G hope that we can see how the previous behaviors, right, the previous domains of servant leadership 
empathy, listening, healing, and awareness. Think of the awareness piece as the four different awarenesses. Awareness of my emotions, how I manage it, awareness of my people's emotions, and then how I relationship manage that. How that helps us with this persuasion domain. And ultimately, it grows our influence, right? It grows our influence around the environment. It grows our influence on people, how we engage. In our next episode, we will look at the next domain of the servant leadership style, which is the conceptualization domain. So how do I create? Um, and we can expect to hear that episode on or around 5 October. My hope is to get Amy King. So another friend of mine that uh, she does a lot of conceptualization. She's written a couple of books already. She's working her second book right now. Um, yeah, she's very, very like when you talk about create, <laughs> she creates. So but anyways, uh, what I would like to say, as always, man, I just want to thank everybody for tuning in into today's episode. I hope that we were able to encourage you all with our stories, uh, educate our listeners with some of the academics behind persuasion, and that everyone feels empowered, really, truly empowered to start persuading if they haven't started persuading already. So until next time, family, much love, be blessed. Peace.